Today on Ag News Daily. This is kind of my main takeaway is that we are the most farmer centric. We're going to default on whatever is best for the farmer within those different types of variables and scenarios, right? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is the Friday, November 17th edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Flying solo today as Tanner is in Florida once again with the uh, Sugar Association down there getting some interesting stuff. So I'm sure he'll have updates for us early next week. But I am wrapping up my week in Kansas City this week. It has been a fun one. I've had a lot of good conversations with folks to talk weather, to talk farm bill, to talk economic policy and obstacles or opportunities heading into 2024. So we're going to have some really good conversations coming up over the next few weeks of great content that I've had. Some evergreen topics as we head into 2024. I really wanted to think about what do our producers, what do our listeners need to know as we head into the new year. So we're going to be bringing you updates from those conversations. But as we dig into the news today, Don't have any U.S. weather outlook or forecasts here, aside from we know that we're going to see some cooling off and probably quite a bit of rainfall here as we head into Thanksgiving week and a shortened week next week. But South America is certainly going to see some heavy rain in the forecast for central Brazil in particular. A recent change to the rainfall pattern is coming for central Brazil, which will bring heavier rain than more than the typical season this time of year. That wet season is forecasted to start around November 19th in just a few days here, but it's very late. This is coming really late here. During the past week, we've seen only spotty showers have been observed over vast parts of central Brazil and Mato Grosso, as well as Mato Grosso do Sul, Goiás, Sao Paulo. And these areas account for about 60 percent of corn acres and 50 percent of soybean acres in the country and some areas in this particular stretch have seen very little rainfall so although they're about to get hit here with quite a few rainfall showers heavy rainfalls coming up a lot of folks are saying it's too late for this growing season after november 19th we start to see the rainfall model trail off once again But all in all here, the next week or so for Central America and Central Brazil could be a heavy one. Pioneer has launched their new Z-Series soybeans for the 2024 growing season. I've got a special conversation coming up to talk more about the new Z-Series, which we can maybe air next week. But this new Z-Series soybeans from Pioneer is going to offer significant agronomic advancements, including improved disease tolerance for SDS, brown stem rot, white mold, and iron deficiencies. The Z-Series seeds will also expand peaking and a few other stack varieties and will increase yields through improved soybean germplasm. The Z-Series class of soybeans builds builds on 50 years of soybean breeding at Pioneer, says Lids. Knutson, the U.S. soybean marketing lead for Pioneer, and it was really exciting to talk to Liz at Commodity Cl- or <laughs> to talk to Liz at Trade Talk this week. And like I said, I'll have a fun conversation to bring you from Liz maybe next week. In other news here, 
John Deere has been awarded a settlement by an Iowa jury of $16.3 million in damages from royalties from Kinsey Manufacturing and Ag Leader. On October 30th, this was awarded here, stating that the two companies infringed on patents, John Deere patents, for seeding methods owned by Deere & Co. and its subsidiary, John Deere Shared Services. The lawsuit claimed that Kinsey's True Speed and Ag Leader's SureSpeed high-speed planting systems infringed on some of these John Deere patents. Kinsey and Ag Leader directly and indirectly infringed on various patents, According to the jury, the jury did not find the infringements were willful, but nonetheless, the companies will pay John Deere $2.1 million in lost profits and another $14.2 million in reasonable royalties. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has announced this week that we will start to resume shipments of beef coming from Paraguay. For the past 25 years, the U.S. has banned imports of beef from Paraguay due to animal diseases such as foot and mouth disease. But a new rule allowing importation lays out a few strict requirements for imports of beef from the South American country. The first is foot and mouth disease must not have been diagnosed diagnosed in the exporting region in the last 12 months. Meat must come from premises premises where foot and mouth disease has never been present present in the animal's lifetime and animals must be inspected before and after death as the US is figuring out here how we cover the shortage in cattle that we'll likely see again in today's cattle on feed report drought numbers have caused ranchers to drastically reduce the number of US cattle to the smallest herd we've seen now in about 61 years We're starting to see more and more imports or companies relying on imports to make things like hamburger. And under this agreement, Paraguay must compete with other countries to fill a group tariff rate quota of 65,000 metric tons per year. Paraguay is expected to eventually get up to 5 to 10 percent of that tariff rate quota. Well, we know now the government will not be shutting down for at least another two months. We saw yesterday that Congress passed a last-minute federal extension here for the government, and that will now send the bill to the president's desk to sign just days before the weekend deadline. The bill was passed in the Senate with an 87-11 to vote and represents a marked de-escalation between congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans. With the new spending measure called a continuing resolution, the government would have just shut down after Saturday, forcing federal workers, military, and more to go without pay or on furlough for Thanksgiving. This, of course, just kicks the can down the road until, of course, January 19th, when we have to see either the the budget rectified or another extension to be passed. But either way, good news here for... Those serving in the government, it was interesting, I was talking to a farm broadcaster who works for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he said, I don't know if I'm going to be here Friday or not. It depends on the government's bill and passage, because if it was not going to be passed, he would have to fly home early ahead of any sort of government shutdown. But a strange thing to even have to think about in your job, for sure. 
Iowa farmers have requested funds of the penny per bushel fee they pay for their sold corn to protest the Iowa Corn Growers Association's support of the carbon dioxide pipelines, according to some pipeline opponents. Now, of course, farmers in Iowa pay a corn checkoff fee, which is a per bushel fee that generates more than $20 million each year for the Iowa Corn Promotion Board. The Iowa Corn Growers Association has been largely in support of the carbon dioxide pipelines, which has, in turn, uh, made a lot of farmers upset about this position. The checkoff dollars are used for various things, including marketing and promotion, but many farmers were upset by the decision here, and according to some farmers, they said, we just want to let them know we don't like what they're promoting. Total refunds have been requested here by farmers of about $2.3 million in refunds. That may not equate to a lot for some farmers, but they say it's the principle of the matter. And if they have enough people to do it, it could make an impact here for the Iowa Corn Growers Association to change its stance, or at least maybe take more of a neutral stance. But the association has announced its support for the pipeline project last year, because they said of the potential boost it has to the long-term viability of ethanol plants in Iowa. More than half of Iowa's state corn is used to produce ethanol, and they said this was a good step in the next direction there to continue supporting Iowa ethanol and Iowa corn farmers. But I tell you what, that is my last headline for today, aside from taking a look at the markets. Here at the midday, markets are down across the board. In the grains, I should say. December corn is down six and a quarter cent, feeling some pressure here around 468 and a half. November soybeans also feeling the pressure on this Friday midday, down 12 and three quarter cents at 1282. December Chicago wheat down three and three quarters cents at 549 and three quarters. December hard red winter wheat down 13 cents at 614. And December spring wheat down 11 cents on the board at 7.15. Taking a look at the livestock markets today, of course, we do have a cattle on feed report coming out later today, which is expected to show once again shrinking herd numbers and potentially higher placements. Markets will trade that news, of course, probably not until Monday as we will receive that port after markets have closed and settled for today. But heading into the report, December live cattle is up $1.37.5 on the board at a Buck six seventy six twelve. January feeders up a dollar eighty two and a half at two twenty nine thirty two. And December lean hogs down forty five cents on the board at seventy one oh two and a half. For today's interview segment, I'm going to kick things off here by heading back into the two part panel discussion on the panel I moderated here at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. Farmers for Soil Health, how do we get to 30 million acres by 2030? Well, listeners, we are catching up here on part two of the panel I moderated at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual convention titled Farmers for Soil Health, 30 Million Acres of Cover Crops by 2030. This is a part two conversation, so if you missed yesterday's episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that interview portion where we tackle the first part of the panel 
Today, we're going to dig into a little bit more of the specifics about how farmers actually get paid out, some of the technical assistance that's available to farmers, and so much more. So let's turn it over. I think there's a number of different programs out there that have maybe similar initiatives to this program, and maybe producers are thinking, okay, well, th what, what's this one versus this one? How do I decide which program is best for me? So I'd like to dig into the technical side just a little bit more, Jack, with you. Yep. So I mentioned early on, farmers can get paid over a period of three years as they transition to start using some of these practices, or if they're already using cover crops or other climate smart practices, they can get paid now. So you mentioned a little bit about the technical assistance, but how does the program actually work? How does a farmer enroll? How do they get paid? How does it work? Yeah, so you just go to our website, farmersforsoilhealth.com, and they will have an enroll now. Right? So there's also a lot of information that you can get about cover crops, about sustainability, on-farm practices, but there's an enroll now. And we actually worked with a partner, uh, DTN, who's actually establishing our kind of uh, website who's kind of where you actually go in and and you build where your field is in your location you enter very simple information uh, they're looking for you know your name your address uh, if you have your FSA number uh, which is your your farm number uh, and essentially your zip code because they need that to pay you right uh, <laughs> and so uh, so those are very minimum information uh, and then also kind of what your cover crop plan is right and so that's all, right? It's very simple, high level. Uh, you know, before, and, and that unlocks that opportunity to get, to create an account. And then once that account is created, hopefully those financial uh, incentives are coming in, flowing in around April, right? Uh, based off of your fall application timeline. And, um, and so the field is essentially verified based off satellite imagery. Right, so no one's going on. No one's driving by your farm and checking their farm. Um, it's satellite imagery verification. Uh, the other component is is um, you know we often talk about you know a lot of the other programs out there are looking at soil sampling. Right, we all know how fickle soil sampling can be and have the results. Right, it's not a carbon program. Ours is a practice based program. Right, so uh, so really we're just looking for that practice to be done on the farm. Um, and, you know, you know, we often, yeah, I, I field a lot of questions about case scenarios, like what if a farmer couldn't do this or what can I do that, you know, or, you know, I couldn't get it planted. And so this is kind of my main takeaway is that we are the most farmer centric. We're going to default on whatever is best for the farmer within those di different types of variables and scenarios, right? Um, you know, you can't get it in. It's not, we're not going to kick you out of the program. If a farmer's like, hey, I tried it one year, it doesn't work for me. There's no cancellation fee. There's no, you know, uh, going and finding you, right? And so that's kind of the mindset that we want to set for our program is the most farmer-centric program. We're here to help. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine, right? But this is the resource. This is available for you to help with this transition. Jack, you mentioned payments will go out in April. So I assume then there's still time for farmers to enroll yet this year to be potentially paid in April of 2024. Yeah, so we have uh, for this first year, because the first year was kind of um, was kind of awkward because we actually didn't get our contract signed with the USDA until like July, uh, which made it really hard to set up kind of a lot of the infrastructure to get everything moving in the right direction. So our, our cutoff time, so if you actually uh, applied... 
uh, cover crops in the fall, you can sign up until the end of February, right? And so uh, March 1st actually starts the next cycle, right? Uh, so even if you've already planted and you weren't kind of, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for you to kind of cash in this year, right? So if you planted cover crops. Great. And I think that comes down to farmers have to really consider what is best profitability-wise. They're also, I think, good stewards of the land. So they're thinking through all of those different decisions. But Lori and Harold, as you think about the economic impact that cover crops have had on your farms, what changes have you seen maybe from a soil health perspective, an agronomic perspective, and most importantly, a financial perspective? I could start. Um, we've been doing cover crops for, for many years. And our primarily the major takeaway I, that we've seen is just an improvement in our soil structure and, and a reduction in erosion is without question the two areas that we think are most closely um, tied to that, just keeping that soil in place and then adding that organic matter back in into the soil um, is just pretty critical. Um, again, residue, as was mentioned earlier, is, is, a, is a gift when you have dry land and, and sandy soils. So I think those are important things to remember um, about that. And, and one of the other things, I guess, to piggyback on what Jack said that's so unique about this program is the fact that it really is individualized by state. I think so many of the government programs that come out are kind of a one-size-fits-all. And if we know anything about agriculture, we know that it is not the same everywhere you go. So it's just critical for us to look at that um, from there and the fact that it is farmer-centric. And we haven't mentioned it, but we've been doing this 15 years. There's really not a lot of other options for us out there, but through Farmers for Soil Health, we can also have a small incentive simply for maintaining those practices. So I think that's a unique part of the program as well. Well, quite obviously, we're just starting, so I don't know the, the financial implications. I can tell you all my deer are walking around with big smiles on their faces because <laughs> they love eating all that nice green stuff out there. I bet they do. As we look at adoption and getting to 30 million acres by 2030, that's just a few years away. It's hard to believe already. So it's uh, on the horizon. But we're currently at about 15 million acres of cover crops in the United States today. So we've got to double in size over the next six years. How are we going to do that? What, will we be able to reach that critical mass number? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, so that estimate, that 15 million acres was based off of the ag census data from 2015. So I think we've already progressed past that 15 million acres. And really to double that, I think it's really creating those opportunities to help farmers find a way to adopt it and have it so it's not such a burden on their operation, right, with those, with those cost share opportunities and also technical assistance. I think those key elements are going to really help a farmer. And then long term, right, you think, oh, this program's only five years and then you're going to go away. Well, hopefully what we are also creating is this marketplace, right? So this is a marketplace where farmers can think about long term, right, where they can actually raise their commodities under certain practices. Companies on the backside will essentially say, hey, I'm, I'm Walmart. I want to offset all my trucks driving across the country, right? And I'm going to pay a farmer for doing these practices so I can offset my, you know, footprint, right? And so and it's, and, and it's an open marketplace where actually the Walmart can say, I want to pay for this price. And it's a mar the farmers can say, no, wait, I want, it, I want it at this price, right? It's an open marketplace, right? It's essential. You know, it creates a scenario where farmers are 
they can they can not just take a price, right? They can actually negotiate with these groups, um, and it's voluntary, right? So you can say no, I don't want to do that, right? And so it's that's the long term vision of this is really kind of you know not only just creating this short term incentive program, but really because creating this this opportunity where farmers can actually you know be paid to to manage their land and really have those additional opportunities for uh, future uh, profitability. I saw you jotting down some notes, Harold, so I'm guessing you have a few things to share. <laughs> Farmers are, are curious and observant, and so I think that is going to be beneficial to us. You know, when you drive down the road and that young farmer uh, across the section is using cover crops and it is helping improve the soil on his farm and he's getting good yields and he's able to manage through all of the different... Uh, uh, things that that you need to do to grow cover crops to grow a crop using cover crops folks realize that and and so I think as we have success out in the country it will build on itself and we're going to see more people using it so I'm very optimistic that we're going to be able to meet that goal Delaney I love that anything else to add Lori yes I I agree with what it is we sometimes talk about cover crops as being a gateway practice, meaning that if we if we can get farmers to try something like that, that then they'll be more open to looking at, at other things. Maybe they begin to say, okay, this worked for me. I think I'll try, you know, no-tilling this field, or or maybe I'll I'll see if there's somebody, a neighbor that's got a, a strip-till machine that they will that they'll use that and and see if we can continue to move forward. Because as Jack mentioned, it's our our goal here is is a is a change in philosophy really it's it's not just but in order to have that change you need to make sure that it's profitable I mean we're that having and a lot of people tend to think of conservation and profitability on two different ends of a spectrum and it's really critical for us to make sure they see where those connect and sometimes they connect simply in in less fuel because we're making fewer trips across the field and and sometimes they connect in increased water holding capacity. There's just so many different ways that we need to make sure they understand. And so that's why the three-prong approach to Farmers for Soil Health is just so um, encouraging because it, it starts with that really basic level, but then moving on to the technical assistance and moving beyond that actually to the marketplace where, where we're saying, look at these practices that you're doing are valuable to our consumers. So let's make sure that the companies that are working with the consumers can bring that back and that that um, benefit is seen by the farmers and not just by the middlemen. Jack, can you touch on the $2 per payment acre a little bit more? We, we hit on how over the next three years, if you start doing this program, you'll get a payment of $50. But for those producers that are already using it, how does the $2 per acre payment work? Yeah, the $2 an acre is not really going to blow anybody out of the water. But the, the, the thing is, is that what I talk about is that uh, that cost share is really to help the farmers transition to the marketplace, right? To kind of be like, hey, why don't you take the $2 per acre, get in the marketplace, and where you can potentially sell your climate smart commodities for, you know, we estimate it could be $25 per acre, it could be $50 per acre based off of how the buyers are on the other end, right? And so... And, you know, as a commodity organization, I can't really tell farmers how much they're actually going to make on that marketplace because I'm not trying to sell you a bag of goods, right? Um, and so what we're, we're just presenting that opportunity. And the other thing is, is like, well, wh why is it only going to be $2? I was like, because, but you have the most unique opportunity because you've already figured out how to make cover crops work on your operation, right? And 
Now you have an opportunity and an access to a marketplace where you can sell your climate smart commodities for additional funding, right? Because you took on that risk by yourself, right? You figured out how to make it work. And now you have access. So a lot, a lot of these other guys that are in this the, the transition, not only the, they're getting a little bit more, but they have to figure out how to make it work on their farm, right? And that's that could be stress-inducing. There's higher risk. Um, you know, so... So I tell guys that have already been doing it, this is a unique opportunity because no one else is going to give you this opportunity to sell your existing uh, commodities within a, within a sustainability marketplace, right? You just took that on your own. And, um, you know, and being a practice-based, you know, scenario and not a carbon program where we're really looking where you have to do additionality, this allows us to get around that additionality issue. Chuck, I wanted to ask a quick follow-up question. You mentioned earlier that the long-term vision really is to create a marketplace for farmers to be able to decide, yes, I'm willing to take this payment and do this practice, or no, we're, need, we're going to need to renegotiate with companies like Walmart, for example. How is DTN helping to facilitate that marketplace? What is the hopefully end goal going to look like? Yeah, so DTN is just facilitating the creation of this marketplace, right? So DTN is is kind of just the embodiment, the medium in which we organize and or operate, right? And so they kind of, um, you know, kind of help collect the payments from the, those said companies, and they also make sure that the money flows from those companies directly to the farmer. The way the marketplace works is that the farmers are not responsible for certain outputs, right? So the companies buy those commodities raised under those practices, and how those companies use those metrics to calculate whatever they want to create, right? So. So they want to do a carbon-based program or they're looking at greenhouse gases. They have to internalize their own operation on, on ver their verification of that, right? They're just, we're just guaranteeing that there's farmers that are doing these practices. We verify that and that's what you purchased, right? So there's nobody going to be showing up on your farm to carbon, you know, soil sample for carbon numbers or anything like that, right? So it's, it's on, the onerous is on those companies to provide those, those metrics, whatever they're trying to prove or whatever they're trying to offset, it's it's on them. It's not on the farmer, right? A lot of these other programs, they want to put it on the farmer, be like, okay, you go out and soil sample and you tell me what I, what numbers I got and report that back to me, right? And so you're working with one entity, right? It's not going through the federal government. It's not going through uh, the company doesn't have, you know, no one's hounding the company to make sure that payment went back to the farmer, right? And so they're, they're signing agreements with DTN that they pay them for those practices, and then that makes sure that funding flows back to the farmer. So hopefully it's a, a one-stop shop. And, and another really cool thing is, is we're going to make this marketplace adaptable. It's not just going to be cover crops. It's going to be maybe some companies want to pay farmers for no-till, or maybe they want to pay for, uh, you know, uh, putting in buffer strips or edge of field monitoring, right? And so there's a lot of opportunities within this marketplace to not just be a cover crop, but it, it could uh, be a wide range of different management options for farmers to capitalize on some of those, those practice-based things that they're going to do to that might be risky, but you, if there's profitability alongside of it, it will de-risk it. And so hopefully it's just moving farmers to be more progressive in some of their conservation sustainability activities, but making sure that they're getting incentivized to do so. All right. Well, I'll end with one final 
wrap-up question for each of you, and you know, I'll just softball this one for you, but any closing thoughts as we wrap up our discussion today? I want to thank everyone um, for your attention and, and going through that, and certainly you'll have opportunities in the, over the next um, day and a half to ask more questions if you wish to um, about how this works. But we think it's a, I guess the, it's a unique program um, created through these commodity organizations, which of course are um, given the charge to give you, the, each farmer, the best return on their investments. So we, we really look at this as a, a valuable means and to be able to use our um, influence really to, to get this grant from the federal government and then be able to get that right back into the farmers hands through their adoption of practices I think makes it very unique and and the three-prong approach to it also is just something that we don't see in other areas so we're excited not only about getting people signed up to increase these cover crops to 30 million acres but just the the way that it opens up more dialogue about conservation and about long-term improvements and profitability yeah and i would just talk about like the amazing opportunities for partnerships and collaboration right you got two of the main grain companies you know groups uh check offs together with with corn and soybeans and pork has that ever happened in the industry ever right to all work on the same project together uh, is a unique opportunity. And then also to think that we are also involving all the state commodity groups as are also part of this program, right? So there's just a huge unique opportunity for everybody to kind of be working together to provide resources and opportunities for farmers to increase profitability through uh, taking on some of these sustainability practices, which is just a huge unique opportunity because Working in kind of agronomy and conservation space for, for nine years before this, it was really kind of like there's a lot of programs that would do, uh, you know, like equip programs where they have a cost share, but they don't really have the technical assistance behind it, right? Or there would be a lot of programs out there with the technical assistance, but they never had any of the financial pieces behind it. So now we have a unique opportunity that has as Lori said, the three areas, right? So it's, it's the technical assistance, the financial assistance, and then also creating a long-term marketplace is really unique. Well, Jack, you stole my thunder. <laughs> you know, there's three reasons I'm excited about this. Easy enrollment, technical assistance, and the marketplace. Uh, and, and you know, the theme for my year as, as president of NCGA is shaping the future. Well, that's really kind of where this marketplace falls into. You know, I don't think, Jack, you have any company saying, well, I'm going to give you 100 bucks an acre if you put cover crops on. But the potential is there for us to have some significant financial incentives as we move into the future. You know, Secretary Vilsack, I'm sure you've all seen his whiteboard presentation, and he talks about the different ways that we're going to find income for small to medium-sized niche farmers. Well, this is going to be one of the ways, I think. I think that fits into his plan. What a fun conversation that was here. And I think we're going to be looking into that program, I'd say. You know, I always have to watch to see what's the catch here. And at least from the discussion we had in Kansas City, there wasn't maybe a clear catch to be had. So certainly an interesting opportunity. There's going to be a lot of other interesting opportunities for producers, I think, heading into 2024. We're going to be having some conversations about some of those potential programs to increase revenue in 24 and beyond on the podcast over the next few weeks, so do be sure to stay tuned. But that's all I have for today, so I'm going to wish everyone a happy weekend and see everyone next week for a holiday-shortened week. (laughs) 